Well, among some of life's most important questions are a collection of questions that are often uncomfortable for people to think about. They make us perhaps a little queasy. They might stir a little bit of fear inside of us. And we often like to avoid these questions. And they're questions like, what happens when I die? We know we're all going to die. I don't want to be a downer, but we're all going to die. What happens when we die? What about heaven and hell? Is that a myth? Is that true? What does that look like? What does God have in store for those that love him? What does God have in store for those that remain his enemies? These are all questions that are of fundamental importance. And sadly, in the Western world, while these questions used to be ones people would regularly preach on and discuss in the lives of their churches, they they tend to be overlooked or cast aside. And while everybody knows on a certain level that they're going to die, human beings go to great extent to try to avoid the subject, don't they? Or try to prolong the inevitable, i.e., Botox surgery, cosmetic surgery. There's even agencies that will freeze your body prior to death in the hopes that you can be defrosted at some later date when there's a cure to a particular disease that you might have. And yet the reality of the human condition is this, that we will all die. And the question is, what is God's plan for that? What is God doing? What is God working out in our lives as we face the pending reality of our own death, will we see Jesus again? Where will we go? Will we be resurrected? What does that look like? How is it that our resurrection has been secured? These are fundamental questions. And so in the final statements of the apostolic creed and the Nicene creed, which were early confessions by the Christians in the first century through to the fourth century, as they're writing out that the cardinal truths, the cardinal verities, the fundamentals of the faith, they included statements like, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, amen. And it wasn't just belief up here. It wasn't just, oh yeah, mental, cerebral, cognitive assent to these truths. They put their hope in it. The Nicene Creed brings this out even more clearly when it says, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. You see, there's an applicability there. I look forward to it. They had allowed this truth, not just to rattle around in their minds, but to affect their outlook, their hope for what was to come. And so when we talk about such matters, what we're actually doing is we're kind of blending together some of the core aspects of our eschatology, which is our doctrine of the end times. Eschatology is the doctrine of what is to come. It literally means last words. We're blending together our biblical anthropology, our view of what a human being is. And we're also bringing to bear our Christology, which we discussed a few weeks ago, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the current incarnated nature of Christ, So it brings together a lot of these these doctrines. And what we want to look at today then is this notion of a bodily resurrection and how that's possible. But in order to do that, we're going to need to spend a bit of time talking about who we are and how God has 
made us. So the big idea for today's message is this, that we believe in a bodily resurrection and life after death. This is orthodox doctrine. To deny the bodily resurrection is to, by definition, not be a Christian. To deny eternal life is to not be a Christian. You cannot deny eternal life and still say you're a Christian. To be a Christian needs to mean something. These are core fundamental doctrines to the Christian faith. They're basic to our orthodoxy, basic to our orthodox eschatology. So just to rewind the clock a little bit for those that might be joining us. If a pastor gets up or you in your personal study, let's say you open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter six and you're studying that passage and you're looking at the word meanings and the context and you're trying to understand what the passage is saying, what you're doing is what we theologians call biblical theology. You're looking at word meanings, you're looking at context, you're looking maybe at a geographical reference, history, structure, universal application, specific application, application to a particular culture, application to all cultures. We call that biblical theology as you, as you tear apart a text and seek to understand it. But let's suppose in that text, a topic arises like God, the nature of God. So you go to multiple passages of the scripture and you try to understand what is the Bible's whole doctrine of God. You're, you're synthesizing, you're systematizing all the different passages in scripture that talk about God. And we call that systematic theology, whereby you're bringing out of the whole Bible, different belief systems. And in Christian theology, we've been working through these different belief systems. So theology proper is the doctrine of God. Christology is the doctrine of the eternal son. Pneumatology, the doctrine of the eternal spirit. I've mentioned anthropology, which is the doctrine of humanity. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Hamartiology is the doctrine of sin. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. Eschatology is the doctrine of the end times. Bibliology is the doctrine of the Bible and so forth. So these are all our theologies. And these are words that have been around for a long, long time. They're not reserved for egghead theologians. They're ones that you could familiarize yourself with. But when we talk about eschatology, the doctrine of the end times, one of the, the trends in the last 150 years or so, really didn't exist prior to that, is that Christians fixate on timelines. So if you study the history of eschatology, look at this statement, for example, they concern themselves with things like resurrection, second coming, eternal life. But modern Christians fixate and even divide over timelines. Now we should concern ourselves with timelines. We could concern ourselves, for example, with the nature of the millennium. Is the millennium literal? Is it figurative? I'm a millennialist. Some of you may not be millennialists. It's not a matter of orthodoxy to be a millennialist or a non-millennialist. Some of you would say there's going to be a great tribulation seven years in length. Some would say, actually, that refers to what happened in Israel in the first century. Some believe that Christ is coming prior to, during, after a literal tribulation. Others would see the tribulation as the prevailing evil and trials and tribulations that God's people go through over the course of time. So there's different views on these things. And I have my views and I've taught on these views many times in the life of our church, but they're not matters of orthodoxy. 
some of the heroes of the Christian faith, the reformers, for example, I can guarantee you had different views on eschatology than probably the majority of people in this room. It's important to have conversations about these things. But in the process of having conversations about timelines, we mustn't lose sight of the most critical orthodox aspects of our eschatology. And one of them is the surety and certainty of a bodily resurrection. And one of them is the surety and certainty of eternal life for those that love the Lord and eternal damnation for those that despise him. So this is going to be the subject of our conversation this morning. I would also just note that pastorally and personally, this is a critical topic. And the reason why it's a critical topic is because we live in a world that is terrified with death. Even among Christians, we've seen it over the last couple of years. They might have the right truth up here, but it certainly isn't affecting this. They know on a cognitive level that death holds no sway over them, but they haven't learned to live it out. They live in fear, chewing on their fingernails, worried about death, worried about the, the doctor's later prognosis. And brothers and sisters, Christians need to get beyond that. We need to take what we believe to be true and appropriate it, apply it, put it into practice. Have I not said many times, good theology should drive doxology, your worship, which should drive praxeology, which is your practice. So while we're going to talk about some heady things today, the goal is not just to fill this thing with knowledge. The goal is to drive us towards worship and to drive us towards a changed response to the world within which we live. Now, let me, before we get into the scripture text, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a background to sort of set the stage and to help, help you to understand that I live in the same world that you do and to help you think about the world within which we live. So, the dominant worldview in Western culture, former Christendom, is Darwinian evolution. That's the dominant worldview when it comes to the nature of humanity and the future. And Darwinianism essentially teaches that you evolved and you will one day die and that's it. So obviously, if you believe that, it's going to affect a lot of things in terms of how you process pain and the nature of life and your purpose and finances and money and people and worship and all that sort of thing. But that's the dominant worldview. The dominant worldview in the West is atheism of a sort. Now, there's no true atheist because to be an atheist is to, is to declare yourself smart enough and knowledgeable enough to declare that God doesn't exist. So in some sense, that's just an, uh, an action of the person that self-deifies. I'm smart enough to declare that God doesn't, doesn't exist. Well, then you're basically declaring yourself to be divine. But we'll use their language. And one of the most famous Darwinian evolutionists of our generation is the professor Richard Dawkins. Now, when you hear Dawkins speak, he, he can be quite dramatic at times, but what you need to hear beyond his words is his worldview. So beyond his words, his worldview, meaning what are some of the basic assumptions that he brings to life? And as you listen to him, one of the things you'll discover is that he's what we call an empiricist. Meaning that when he thinks of truth, how can I know something to be true? How can I know right and wrong? 
How can I arrive at a conclusion on anything? What are the, where, where do I get truth from? How do I analyze that which is true and false? He boils it down to empiricism. So if I can't taste it, touch it, smell it, see it, hear it, prove it in a mathematical formula, prove it in a test tube, it doesn't exist. So if the, if the human cannot prove that something is true through empirical methods, then it isn't true. If I can't figure it out, if I can't prove it in a lab, prove it on a, through a mathematical equation, touch it with my own hands, then it's not true. Sounds a lot like doubting Thomas. Thomas was an empiricist. If I, if I can't put my fingers in Jesus' side, if I can't see the wound, the wounds in his hands, I won't believe. So against that backdrop, denying special revelation, denying that there is a source of truth beyond human reasoning, that God actually grants us revelation about himself, about ourselves, about our sin, about salvation, denying that as part of his worldview, Richard Dawkins says, quote, if children understood that beliefs should be substantiated with evidence, read between the lines, empirical evidence only, as opposed to tradition, authority, revelation, or faith, they will automatically work out for themselves that they are atheists. So in part, Dawkins is accurate because in Romans chapter one, we're told that people naturally suppress the truth. The natural man, apart from the regenerating work of God, will, pr- will try to smother the truth, will try to drown it. He won't accept it. But Dawkins is incorrect in that he assumes that evidence is only attainable through human reasoning. This is why when it comes to apologetics, which is the science and art of defending the Christian faith, we deny rational evidentialism. We're presuppositionalists. Meaning that the human mind can reason and explore evidence, but you could have a mountain evidence this high for the existence of God and your sinfulness apart from regeneration will still bury it. So it's not the absence of evidence that leads to atheism. It's the human being's propensity because of their sin to push God away and to try to usurp his rightful rule. And we see it expressed in multiple worldviews throughout human history. So Dawkins would deny, you could, have, you could say, look, I have a relationship with Christ. I've seen the risen Christ move in my life. I have experienced eternal life. And he'd be like, it's, it's not enough. It's kind of like the forest scientist that might say to you, that might say to a man, you cannot possibly affirm the existence of a forest unless you can explain the microbial process whereby sap is converted into sugar and then maple syrup while all the time leaning against a tree. So you're called upon to deny your experience, deny your encounter because you can't prove it through using rational evidential means. And that is one of the fundamental problems in Western culture. It's actually about truth and how we discover what is true and what is false. Well, as Christians, we historically accept special revelation, this book, as the highest form of truth. And we don't have to check our brains at the door to do so. But we affirm in our worldview that God actually reveals. He breaks through our human sinfulness and he reveals truth to the sinner. 
who would otherwise suppress truth. And his spirit works in such a way that we receive it and we know it to be true, even though it may not be verifiable through empirical evidences. So not only does Dawkins, not only is he guilty of a, a, a categorical fallacy. What do I mean by that? He seeks to define God through human instruments of knowledge. Let me say it again. He seeks to define God using human instruments of knowledge, using proofs from creation. Why is that a categorical fallacy? Because God is by definition not created. So you can't use that which is created to categorically prove the existence of one who by definition is not created. You have to have special revelation or your very definition of what God is or who God is falls flat on its face. So that's a bit of an egg-headed background to where I ultimately want to take us. And that is to the word of God, which gives to us the final authoritative message on God, on life, on eternal life, and on salvation. And the Bible categorically declares the existence of God. The the Bible categorically declares that Jesus Christ entered into this world as the God-man who died in our place and accomplished something significant for us. So let's talk for a moment about death. So what happens when I die? Well, this flows from our anthropology. So instead of getting right immediately into a discussion about the reality of the resurrection, we'll get there. What I want to do is I want to start with a bit of anthropology. I want to help you to think through for a moment What is a human being? What has God said to be true about humanity? So you're looking at this guy right now, he's preaching to you. Presumably you know my name, presumably you can hear my voice, and presumably you can see me. But what am I? What is a human being? Now we need to answer this question precisely. We don't want to fall into the trap of dividing our humanity up into a series of parts, like we might do a car. Oh, there's the car door. There's the car engine. There's the car wheels. They're all a series of parts. You can just swap out the parts. That's not what human beings are like. It's not like we're a compilation of parts. Oh, there's a soul. There's a spirit. There's a mind. There's a heart. There's a body. We're just sort of all a bunch of parts. The Greek dualists who influenced a lot of early Christians through Gnosticism had this view that we were material and immaterial, but our material aspect was all dirty and sinful and our immaterial aspect was pure. So do everything possible to deny the material nature of the human being and just exalt and almost deify the immaterial. Now it is true that we are material beings and we are immaterial beings. There are certain aspects to my humanity. Here I am, you can see me, I'm a physical being, but I'm more than a physical being. I also have an immaterial essence about me. I'm material and I'm immaterial. You're material and you're immaterial. And God is concerned with the whole you. So in God's desire to save and to renew all things, Is he interested in saving your soul? Yes. Does that mean he's disinterested in saving your body? No. He's interested in redeeming the whole of you. 
So the eschatological vision for the Christian is not that we would be disembodied spirits, plucking harps on a cloud in eternity forever and ever. And our dirty old bodies just stay down in some grave someplace. But God's desire and intention is to redeem the whole you, to redeem your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit, different words that we use to refer to your immaterial aspect and to redeem your body. This is why, this is why we have the absolute surety of a bodily resurrection because God wants to redeem the whole, the whole you. Let me just prove to you from scripture that you have a material aspect and an immaterial aspect. And it is possible for the immaterial aspect to be separated from the material aspect for a limited period of time. So go first of all to Matthew chapter 17, verse two. And this is what we know as the transformation or the transfiguration, I should say, whereby Jesus is performing his earthly ministry and he's out with a couple of his disciples and he's transfigured before them. They see an aspect of his glorious divinity. And in that transfiguration, two figures that had previously died speak to them. And they are Moses and Elijah. It says there, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Moses and Elijah are pictured in this gospel narrative as speaking to Jesus but they're not yet resurrected. They'd previously died. Now there are some able theologians that would say this is an exception to the rule. That the reason why Moses and Elijah are in heaven is because Elijah was taken up, Moses went up into the mountain and was no more. So they read between the lines and they would say, well, what that means is that these are one of perhaps two or three embodied saints that are with the Lord and any other saint that dies throughout history, it's a mystery as to where they are. But there's other scriptures that make that a very questionable interpretation. Instead, it's better to understand that upon death or upon every believer going upon death, every believer goes to be with the Lord in their immaterial humanity, whereas their material humanity remains in the ground until such time or in the sea, until such time as God resurrects the body. So let me take you then to an experience that Paul had to prove this point in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse two. So Paul is reminiscing here about an experience that he'd had prior where he'd encountered God. And he, he talks about going to the third heaven In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, it says, I know a man in Christ, speaking of himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. So Paul has some sort of a uh, possible, it's the way he kind of frames it up, possible out of body experience where he's caught up into heaven. But he goes on to say, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. So he's not even sure if he's been disembodied or not. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So here's the thing. 
while he doesn't know whether he was disembodied or not, his two statements here reveal to us that he saw it as a possibility. So he wasn't an anthropological monist, meaning that he did not believe there was no separation between body, soul, and spirit. But it seems in Pauline theology, he understood there's a material aspect and an immaterial aspect to his humanity. Now let's head on over to the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter one, he also makes a statement about being potentially out of the body. In Philippians chapter one, verse 23, it says, I am hard pressed between the two. I desire to be to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So what's he talking about there? Maybe he's talking about what you've experienced this week. Man, life is rough, it's tough. I got a ministry, God is using me. I love to serve, but man, I'd like to go to be with Jesus now. But in saying that, he understands that while his body would need to die for that to be true, he can still be with the Lord at the same time. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, yes, we're of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So this is why I'm getting into all this stuff with you. I wanna emphasize that while God has created us as unified beings and he's going to resurrect us for a reason because your full humanity includes your material aspect, your body. And you are incomplete without your body. God didn't create Adam and Eve as spirits and later on say, hey, you want a little bonus? I'll give you bodies. We are material beings. And yet at the same time, we are immaterial beings and God's future vision is not that we would remain in a disembodied state, although the Bible seems to be clear that if we die today, we do go to be with the Lord, if we're believers. But, and, and that our immaterial self can then exist apart from the body, but that God's ultimate goal, his ultimate desire is the reunification of the material and the immaterial in the eternal kingdom. Even when it comes to this world that we live on, it's physical. You can step on it. You can feel it. Are we gonna spend eternity in heaven? No, we're not. The Bible does not teach that. We spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, which are either a complete renovation of the current, whereby the fire purifies it, or a complete annihilation of the current and a literal physical recreation of the heavens and the earth. You can go both ways on that. But the reality is, is that our eternal vision is that we will walk on a physical planet and we will be physical beings forever and ever and ever when God renews all things. And this is why we preach heartily the doctrine of a bodily resurrection. It matters. It matters to our view of who we are, of our very humanity, of how God has designed us. Now, before we talk about resurrection hope, I want to comment briefly on the destiny of God's enemies, because primarily up till now, I've been speaking to believers and I've been talking about God's eternal plan for those that have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. But what about the destiny of God's enemies? What happens to people that refuse to surrender themselves to Christ? What happens to those that say, yeah, no thanks. 
I'm going to live life my own way. I will not repent. I will not put my faith in Christ. I will not acknowledge the existence of God. What happens to them? Well, here's what the Bible says. In Revelation chapter 20, you can head on over there. I'm going to read verses 11 and following. There will come a day of reckoning where God will call. If you died and you fell into some water, God will call forth that person from the sea. God will call forth people from the grave. God will call forth souls from hell itself. And there will be a judgment. And this is called the great white throne judgment. The whiteness of the throne pictures, pictures the perfection of God. And so in Revelation 20, verse 11, the Bible says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's God. This is how terrifying that God is. Listen to the descriptions that come next. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, meaning the kings of the earth and the commoners alike, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, referring to the grave and hell, personified there, gave up the dead that were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here we have this cataclysmic futuristic vision of God's final pronouncement of judgment upon rebellious humanity and upon death and hell itself. So it would be accurate to say that if a person dies right now, they go into a state of death. Their bodies die, believers and unbelievers alike. The believer goes to be in the abode of God. The unbeliever goes to hell, but there's gonna come a time when all the unbelievers and the dead alike will be called before God and they will be cast into an eternal state of damnation apart from God. Let me just make this comment next. If you think about it, what I've just said right now is incredibly countercultural. It's incredibly countercultural. We live in a society that is very supposedly inclusive. Most people think human, human beings are born good and are more or less good and charitable. And the notion that we are bad enough to be eternally damned would make most people even in our own country gasp. I can't believe you'd say that. I can't believe you would say we're gonna die eternally. But you know what's interesting about that reaction? It actually is symptomatic of the very first her heretical statement ever issued in the created world. What do I mean by that? Go back to Genesis chapter one. We have a record of God's creation of the world. Genesis two, a record of God's creation. You get into Genesis chapter three and the serpent shows up on the scene, the incarnate serpent. And he's having a conversation with Adam and Eve. And he asks them a question and they respond to the question kind of accurately and kind of inaccurately. So there's sin there. But the first heretical statement, the first heretical statement ever 
issued, ever heard in this, on this created planet came from the serpent himself. You know what he said? He said, you will not surely die. That's the first heresy ever uttered in the planet. And unfortunately, it's a heresy that continues to reveal itself in the Christian church today. We preach the gospel without reminding people that if you rebel against God, you will surely die. That's fundamental to the gospel. Now, it's easy to preach a gospel that says something like, you know what? We'll borrow therapeutic language because biblical language is kind of rude. I know you struggle with imperfection. I know you're broken. I know you're lonely. I know you feel disconnected from the cosmic other. But there is a God who loves you and is merciful. And if you just go to him and trust in him and rest in him, he will make you whole. And that's the gospel. Well, there's some truth there. But what about you're actually a sinner? You've rebelled against God. And you will surely die. You'll die physically and you'll die spiritually. See, it's it's not a gospel. It's not really that good unless you realize what you're being saved from. So what the Christian church needs to do is to stop soft peddling the gospel, stop revising the gospel, stop preaching the half gospel. I would be remiss as a preacher of the gospel. You would be remiss as a true friend if you were preaching the gospel to someone and you failed to introduce them to the consequences. There is a heaven and there is a hell. There is a final judgment and there is a real place called the lake of fire that lost people will be consigned to if they continue to rebel against God. Let us not make the mistake of repeating Satan's heresy by denying either with our words or with the absence of our words that death is the consequence to disobedience against God. Instead, we must preach the certainty of death and the certainty of damnation, regardless of whether we're labeled as being unkind or old-fashioned, because that is what God's revealed word teaches us. In fact, arguably, it is incredibly unkind not to preach to people the full truth of God's word. That's not loving at all. You might think it's loving, but that's very unloving. Now, that is the destiny of the lost, but God's intention for his own is to eternally redeem us, body, soul, and spirit. So when and how will the Christian be resurrected? Well, one of the most famous resurrection passages of the word of God is 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35 and following, we have the question asked, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And then we have a series of illustrations to try to help us roughly understand this. You foolish person, Paul writes, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So here's the sermonic illustration. Think of a seed. You take a seed, you put it in the ground. It looks dead. Let's not get all scientific on them because we know there's life, potential life there. But for all intents and purposes, it looks dead. And then in the spring, all of a sudden you have grass or whatever it is you've planted, wheat come up. And now you see the potential of the seed realized. So he's using a rough analogy to try to help us to understand our bodies now and what God has in store for us in the future. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, 
but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it to a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body for not all flesh is the same. There, there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. So in this context, he's trying to help us to understand that yes, we, we have a, a body right now. And if you're human, you're always gonna be human. Just like if you're an elephant, elephants begat elephants, contrary to Darwinian evolution. People and creatures reproduce after their own kind. And there is a sense in which we are, we have our bodies now and we do, but there's something greater to come. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars are different from star and glory. Here's his point. So it is, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. So when your body goes into the ground, it disintegrates. That's what happens over time. You can slow it down by being embalmed, but it disintegrates. But that's not the end of it. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who's the last Adam? Christ. But it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, that's Adam. The second is from heaven, not denying the full humanity of Christ, but in terms of the source. Christ is, his, he comes from heaven, even in his humanity, Mary is impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Adam is created from the dust. But as the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust up till now in our physicality, our, our material nature, we are, we are of the dust, just like Adam and our forebears have all been. But then it goes on to say, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So this is a fascinating teaching here, we believe in the reality of a bodily resurrection and it is secured for us by whom? By Christ. It's secured for us by Christ. Just as we were made in the image of Adam and have inherited his sin, his vulnerability, his weakness, his rebellious nature, propensity to die of diseases, all that sort of thing. So now through faith in Christ, we have inherited the image of the second Adam, who is Christ, the image of the eternal son. So his, just as our death is linked to the first Adam, now our eternal life is linked to the second Adam. This blows out of the water, folks, works-oriented salvation. Just boom, it's gonzo. 
Our life is with and in and linked to the Lord Jesus Christ's life. His life has become ours. We believe in the perfection of our resurrected bodies because Christ's body has been eternally resurrected. He's conquered the grave. And this is a little hard to wrap our minds around. I know when I preached on this several weeks ago, I had a few people say, I never thought about that before. But Christ, think about this. The Lord Jesus Christ right now is still embodied. He's still embodied. It's like, how is that possible? How can he be omnipresent, all present and still be in a human body? Well, it was the same in his incarnation. In his humanity, we would say he was localized, but in his divinity, he was not. Our Lord Jesus Christ is still and will eternally be an embodied being. So when you meet Jesus in heaven, it won't be like, it's kind of a spirit floating around. I can't get a hold of him, never really seen him. You'll be able to meet him face to face. The second person of the triune God, you'll be able to meet face to face. And it is his perfected body that ours will become like. Now, the order of the resurrection is important. You can't attain it yourself. It has to be grounded in and rooted to Christ. So at his coming, which we covered under our Christology, we know that he will judge the living and the dead. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, it says, for as in Adam all die, how many die in Adam? Does that mean like 90%? No, it means all. Nobody's gonna sneak out the back door. All die in Adam. It's, it's the opposite to what Satan claimed. You will not surely die. Oh, yes, you will. How many people have died up to this point in history? You know. As in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now that is those that are in Christ. The redeemed. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his second coming, those that belong to Christ. So what the writer's doing there, when he talks about Christ as the first fruits, he's talking about preeminence and order. So Christ has been resurrected. So now we're waiting for the pending resurrection of these bodies that has been secured and is assured through Christ. So you don't need to worry about it. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be absolutely sure that one day your body will be resurrected, perfected, and you will be with Christ forevermore. Be encouraged by these words. Be as encouraged as the writers of Nicaea were. Look forward to it and put your hope in it. Well, over the last several weeks, there's much that we've learned about our theology and Christology and pneumatology and all these ologies about the word of God and what the Bible says about these fundamental categories of the faith. But really what we've done is just scratch the surface. This is just like theology 101. There's so much more beauty to God's word, even than what we've discussed here on Sundays for the past couple of months. And so what I would like to encourage each of you to do is to become a lifelong theologian, to become a lifelong theologian, to commit yourself to continuing to study, to show yourself approved as one who can rightly handle the word of God. What you'll discover as I have is that the more you study God's word, the more sure you are of your faith 
but the more humble you are because you realize how much you don't know at the same time. So it can be a bit of an intimidating and humbling process. I remember when I went to Bible college, I thought I knew a lot. I took about two theology classes and I thought I should come to school with a dunce hat on because I realized how little I knew. And at times I still feel I know very, very little. But the beauty about God's word is that it's, it can never be exhausted. It always has something beautiful and new and fresh to teach us. So become a student of God's word. But here's the thing, don't make the mistake of simply filling your mind with information. Don't make that mistake. Because when God speaks and he reveals truth to us, it's meant to transform you. It's meant to transform your mind so you can think more clearly about life and analyze truth from error and guard yourself from lies and heresy. But it's also meant to drive you this way, to drive you to worship, to drive you into doxology so that you might give glory words to God. That's what doxology means, glory words. So that you might lift high the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The theologian can sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty in a much more meaningful way than someone who doesn't understand what holiness even is or what almighty means or who God is in all of his fullness. So when you study God's word, what you want to do is not just become an egghead, but you want to expand your worship life and exalt and lift him high. And then that is meant to drive you out into the world to share the gospel with people, to reprioritize your marriage your family, your life. It's meant to affect the way you respond to pain and suffering and death and disease and temptation. So it's meant to affect, affect you. So commit yourself to being a lifelong theologian, but also commit yourself to being a lifelong worshiper and commit yourself to being a lifelong follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be richly blessed as you already have been, I'm sure. 